Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So I think I need to start off today by saying we're not talking about UFOs or Roswell or any kind of truther thing. Uh, We are talking about the very real possibility of intelligence somewhere else in the universe that can communicate with God in a similar way that we can communicate with God. Now, this might seem like kind of a weird or a fringe topic, not really related to any major theological questions. But as we will hear, it does have pretty serious implications for at least two areas of theological reflection. The first is the Trinity, specifically the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity. Are there multiple incarnations? Is there only one? And then the second is other religions here on earth. Some of what we think would apply if there are other intelligences that are different than us will also apply to people who are raised in radically different environments than we are raised in. If you think about it for a minute, you see the connection there. We'll be hearing from two experts today. One is an astrophysicist and one is a philosopher and a theologian, both practicing Christians. In fact, David Wilkinson, our first guest, is not only an astrophysicist, he's also a Methodist minister and a theologian. After a short break, we'll then hear from Cambridge's own Keith Ward, where we will focus more on the theological questions that all of this raises. 
I interviewed both David and Keith in Denver at the American Academy of Religion conference back in November. Now to my chat with David Wilkinson, who has a PhD in astrophysics and is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society in England. We start out this conversation talking about all the massive and recent changes in what we now know about planets elsewhere in our galaxy and even in the rest of the universe. David, what is an exoplanet? It's a planet which is outside our solar system, and this has been very important in the last 30 years or so. 1995, we would have said that we knew of no exoplanets at all. We only knew of the planets around our own sun and our own solar system. Um, And then from 1995 onwards, we began to see evidence for planets around other stars. Now, we believe theoretically that there should be planets there, but there are a range of theories, some of which would have meant that, in fact, planets would be the exception Hmm. around stars, some of which would have meant that there were lots and lots of planets. The observational evidence so far is that there's lots and lots of planets. Okay, so Uh, the idea being something like when a star is formed, there's usually a bunch of stuff that congeals into spheres that orbit it. Yeah, or, pretty much or, so. or it doesn't happen that way. That's but, right. When yeah. you make an apple pie, you put the pastry on the top, you get little bits that drop off at the edges. Yeah. Now, if that is rotating very quickly, which is not a good thing to do with an apple pie, but imagine <laughs> that it was, those little bits at the edges would condense under gravity and rotation to fall small planets. And that's the theory now that the discovery of all of these exoplanets has reinforced that planets form while most stars are forming as they condense out of gas. Okay, and so how do we see these planets? Really difficult to see, because if you imagine you're holding a small torch, well, you can see that quite a long way away. However, if you put that beside a massive searchlight, you can't see the small torch at all because the huge searchlight just takes up the light in its own. Yeah, and our and sun, for instance, is very, very bright. And we don't emit are, any absolutely. kind of light like that. In fact, the moon only emits a reflection of the sun's light. Of course it does. Right. Now, imagine that situation being a long way away from us. Uh, you can't see planets directly by the reflection of the light. Mm. But you can see the stars. And the stars, as the planets revolve around them. Actually, stars themselves feel a force of gravity from the planets and so literally wobble on their axis. Mm. Now, again, that's difficult to to see, but we know a thing called the Doppler effect. That is, if an object moves and it emits light, the light is slightly bluer than it actually is. If it moves away from you, it's redder than it actually is as you observe it. And so you look at these stars and the wobble produces these slight color variations in the stars. And that tells you about the planets. But that's only one method. The second method is that occasionally you have the situation where a planet moves in front of its star and it blocks out a little bit of the light. A kind of an eclipse, yeah. That's right. I mean, that is a very small amount of light that it blocks out. But if you look at that star and its planet long enough, you see it. Yeah, if you, and if you have a good enough telescope. Exactly. Right. And that means really putting telescopes in space. Uh, mm. And the Kepler Space Telescope was very helpful in seeing a lot of these. And the third thing is an even neater method. I mean, it's really cool. And that is that 
Albert Einstein said that light itself is curved by the presence of mass in the universe. Right. And occasionally you can see the curvature of light around these planets because the very distant stars behind them, the light is slightly out of focus. That just happened and to be the same direction right. exactly. away from us. Yeah. So it doesn't happen very often, but you've got to remember there's 100 billion stars in our galaxy. So it happens a few times. So this, yeah. it happens a few times. And now that is a simple description. Of course, I, there's a lot more that. work. I've seen an example at the Natural History Museum in New York recently where instead of just seeing a star, it's almost more like you're seeing three little wobbly half moons. And what they're saying is that's actually just one star being warped around by uh, a massive object. That's right. It's a wonderful thing. And in the sense that, remember this was 1915, Albert Einstein said this would happen. Mm -hmm. Right. On the basis of trying to understand the but nature he of the universe. But yet because didn't have telescopes right. in space. In fact, it was proved in a very rough way in 1919 by a fascinating physicist who went on an expedition to Africa and looked at stars as though light was bent by our sun. Mm. And his name was Eddington. He was a Quaker. He was quite a, a strong Christian believer. And for him, this was an exhibition of the beauty of the heavens. Mm. Now, there have been a couple recent exoplanets that seem potentially habitable in the news. Proxima Centauri has one, and then the Barnard Star has one. Is there anything important to mention about those two? What's really important about them, and you're right to highlight them, is that they're stars which are near to our star. Mm. Now, remember that, that the distances in space are very large. Yeah. So if I had a peanut in my hand and I said that was the size of the sun, then a grain of salt on the surface of that peanut would represent the Earth. Okay. Yeah, that sense. Now, the question is, where would be the next peanut to represent the distance to Proxima Centauri? Would it be at the end of this room? Would it be on the outskirts of Denver? Well, I don't know my geography terribly well in the States, but having flown last night, you'd probably have to put that peanut in Dallas, Okay. To represent the distance to the nearest star. Denver to Dallas, two oh, peanuts. Right. Two peanuts. Okay. Now, that's a big distance. Yeah. But compared to space, it's not that huge. Right. <laughs> and so Proxima is about four light years away from us, and Barnard's star is about six light years away from yeah. us. Now, that makes it just about possible that you could imagine at least sending information in a way that within decades you might get something back if yeah. there was or intelligent if, life there. if somehow you could emit a light that was very 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 bright and some sort of morse code or something like that you could see it in four years or see it in six years yes you could and yeah. indeed i mean if they were looking for it they would have picked up some of our radio and television already mm. so you can just imagine yeah they'd be looking at a world four years ago without donald trump for example right that's if they what were looking they, right if now. they were if they were looking right. at it. Now, the downside is that the planets that we've seen around those stars are probably too hot for life. Mm. But they are interesting because they give us encouragement then to look at many stars which are close to us. And how many of these exoplanets do we now know about? About 3,800 
current yeah. counting. You've got to look up uh, the website every day. They, to be they're sure. adding them constantly. They're adding them mostly daily. Wow. In fact, I've got a, an app on my iPhone, which pings every time a new planet is discovered. I'm just really um, hoping it will ping during this conversation. That's right. I've put it on point. silent already. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a lot since 1995. And that's what encourages us that to think that a good proportion of stars, maybe 30, 50% of stars, all have planets. Now, most planets are not habitable. Even in our own solar system, we live on the only one. Maybe Mars could be with some technology, but certainly Venus is not habitable. Jupiter is not habitable. So if we, if we know about 3,800 or so, how many of those are potentially habitable and what does it take for a planet to be habitable? number of things, and a very small percentage of those, probably maybe only a handful would be habitable. So you've got to have a number of things. First of all, you've got to have a star that's going to be around for a long time. Mm. The star's too big, goes through its life cycle and explodes. That's not good for life. Yeah. Second, the planet we think has to be rocky in that it's very difficult to imagine life developing in gas clouds like Venus right. or Jupiter. Third, it has to be the right distance from its star. It has to be in what's called the habitable zone, far enough from the star where water is in liquid form. The moment we think that life needs that to develop. And then it's got to have a stable atmosphere. So it's got to have the kind of atmosphere that the Earth has, which is thick enough not to lose all of its heat, but thin enough not to go into global warming. So there's a number of things here which are important. The good side is that we think that the kind of elements of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, iron, these are widespread in the universe. So they should be part of every planet that's forming. You, now, you keep saying the good part. <laughs> Why is it good that there are other habitable planets, especially if they're too far for us to ever get to them? There's a whole number of reasons. First is that I'm an astrophysicist. Just, it's just uh, you, need, fun. you need lots of PhD subjects in astrophysics. <laughs> the second is I'm a Star Trek nerd. Okay. Star Trek would be very boring if it was simply to boldly go to discover even more bacteria. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, I, I think for me, this is something about the extravagance of God. There's mm. something about the universe which I'm continually impacted by, which is the basic question, why couldn't have God just created one sun and one planet. Mm. He could have developed relationships with the human race just by that. Yeah, that would have been plenty. More than enough. But one of the things that strikes me, particularly about the Genesis account, is the extravagance of God, the mm. uh, sense of different kinds and all the rest of it, and the great understatement of the Bible, one of my favorites, which is God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the less light rule the night, and then the writer pauses and says, oh, and by the way, he made the stars also. <laughs> this God is so great that he created 100 billion stars and 100 billion galaxies. And, and we'll acknowledge that. We'll, we'll not major on it because he's, he's God. Now, yeah. I think, therefore, for a scientist and a Christian like myself, there's an excitement with discovering the diversity within creation. Mm. Kepler, great astronomer, once said that science was thinking God's thoughts after him. And one of the things that exoplanets do is to simply expand one's vision of God and the kind of diversity that God rejoices in, just like a great artist. Mm. 
So God is the great mathematical creator in the sense that the laws of physics are beautiful, elegant, and very simple. But God is also the great artist, the one who composes through the mathematics these different worlds. And it's a voyage of discovery. Yeah. Now, before we move on to how likely we think it is that there is other life, let's tarry here for a second. You're an astrophysicist, but you're also an ordained minister. Talk a little bit about the relationship between those two. What led you to, uh, which came first, you know, all of that. I was a physicist first, not for any great reasons, it has to be said. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I chose to do physics because, to be very honest, I was into a sport called cricket, and mm-hmm. the best university in the land to, to play cricket at was Durham University. And I needed a subject to do, which wouldn't take up lots of time because you need lots of time to play cricket. So you, you, did you have a scholarship to play cricket? Not quite. <laughs> okay. We don't have those kind of scholarships it's a in different. the UK. It's <laughs> UK, a little different. Yeah, yeah right, right. Um, but that was my interest, and I was pretty good at mathematics, so I knew I, knew I could do physics without spending a lot of time. I became a Christian at the age of 17, just before going to university. And one of the amazing things that began to happen was that as my faith grew, so my interest in the science grew. Mm. And as my interest in the science grew, it fed into my faith, not in an easy way. I mean, these often pose difficult questions for each other, questions that I know that you're interested in as well, questions of evolution, questions of how you read the first few chapters of Genesis, questions of the problem of evil, questions about the methodology of science and the methodology of theology. Now, these these weren't easy questions, but I have to say they were all fruitful questions, both to excitement in science and excitement in faith. So I worked as, as a professional astrophysicist, and I didn't get to a stage where I was cheesed off with science or what does cheesed off oh, mean? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> bored with science. Bored, okay, yeah. Or indeed worried about, about science. I'm still very excited by science. But without being overly religious, I simply felt that God called me mm. into Christian leadership. And that part of that call was to continue this interest I've had yeah. in science and faith. Uh, sometimes for the interest of those outside the faith, but sometimes just for discipleship, if... One of the things I learned in becoming a Christian from the very early days was the proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, he has to be Lord not just of what I do on a Sunday. Yeah. He has to be Lord of what I do uh, in science as well. Okay, let's get to intelligent life. So if 30 to 50% of stars have planets, and if there are billions of galaxies which each contain billions of stars— we're talking, tr- I mean, more than trillions of planets. And even though you said, if we've got 3,800, a handful might be habitable, well, it doesn't take a whiz to think that <laughs> you're going to have quite a few more than a handful that are going to be in that habitable zone, that are going to have water and rock and not heat up and be around the right kind of star. So it seems like the obvious next move is to say, certainly there's life out elsewhere in the universe but you're not so quick to do that, and why not? No, I'm not, because I think it's a fair argument, but it needs qualification. It's interesting that a lot of my astronomer friends use that very argument and say there must be lots of life out there. Many of my biologist friends, however, say, ah, but to generate complex life is very tricky. Mm. It depends very sensitively on the environment, 
and on a stable environment. And many of my biologists are very skeptical of other life elsewhere in the universe. Mm. To put it bluntly, it's a long way from an amoeba to an accountant. Yeah. An amoeba, a single-celled organism, needs to go through a process uh, which is really quite complex to get to the stage not just of uh, mammalian life, but also then to introduce concepts such as intelligence yeah. and consciousness. So the universe could be full of bacteria. I, I actually think it probably is. It probably is, yeah. And I think we'll find on the surface of Mars mm. some very simple life at some point. But our interest is often in intelligent life. Right. And that's really quite more difficult both to understand and to to say that it'll be emerging everywhere. And a second argument came through a man called uh, Enrico Fermi, a great physicist in the 50s, who was having lunch with a number of his friends. And uh, they were talking with humor about flying saucers and whether they were the right kind of objects that you could pilot across the universe. Mm. Fermi went into his into one of his uh, long silences. He was famous for this because he suddenly started to calculate something in his own mind. And he looked up at the table halfway through the meal, not having said anything, uh, and simply said, where is everybody? Because what he'd done was a very good calculation. He said, if you have a civilization which sends out probes to different stars in the galaxies, mm -hmm. and those probes were self-replicating, how long would it take for that civilization to visit every star in the galaxy? Meaning you send people to Mars, they send people to somewhere else. Exactly. Or, you know, whatever, yeah. Now, you can build all of the complications into this, and indeed you can see a bit of it happening in the colonization of some of the islands in the South Seas. Mm. Pacific. Okay. What Fermi worked out was that the time scale was about 300 million years to send probes to every star in the galaxy. That sounds a long time, but actually 300 million years is only a short part of right. the 10 billion years which our galaxy has been around. Now, you could solve that by saying within our galaxy, we got to intelligent life before anyone else in our galaxy but the mathematical chances of that would be very, very low. Very, very low. And, of course, this game is about probabilities and guesses. Yep. And so you could argue that, and some have argued that, but it would be a very, very low probability. The more likely scenario is that we possibly are alone. In our as, galaxy. In our galaxy. And yep. that's important to say. You're yep. absolutely right in saying that. So the Fermi paradox does not apply outside of the Milky Way. That's right, because the distances between galaxies are so huge that travel between galaxies would be virtually impossible. Mm. The nearest a major galaxy to ours is Andromeda, which is 2.5 million light years away from us. So it takes light two and a half million years to get exactly. there. Exactly. So basically the only, even the only sci-fi way to travel between galaxies is basically bending space-time or finding That's a right. rupture or something. Right. Yeah. And Lawrence Krauss, a great uh, cosmologist a number of years ago, wrote a fun book called The Physics of Star Trek, mm -hmm. in which he looked as a cosmologist about how you might warp space and time. Now, it is possible, but you would need the gross national product of the Earth 10 million times over 
in order to do that, and probably help from a few black holes as well. So within uh, not just our current technology, but our current theoretical framework, you can't travel faster than the speed of light. Of course, you can send messages at the speed of light, but even messaging between galaxies is a major problem. Uh, right. That's the time delay. Two and a half million year time Two delay. Two and a half million. Not day. very helpful. That's right. <laughs> so probably we are alone as intelligent life in the Milky Way. Yes, that would be my best guess. But there are billions of other galaxies, and the Fermi paradox does not apply to those. And so what would apply to those would be what sort of, if we were to be able to figure out how likely it is for certain kinds of evolutionary steps to take place, right? Maybe something about the likeliness of organic life forming and then the likeliness of that turning into multicellular organisms and then the likeliness of yada, yada, yada. Or, you know, if, for instance, if in humans, if in primates becoming bipedal opened up the pelvis, allowing for larger brains, allowing for language, then we might wonder, well, what other types of Mutations might allow for larger brains or something, maybe even something not like a brain. Like That's right. cephalopods have a different kind of a nervous system than humans have, like octopus, octopi, right? Where their, their nervous system is spread out throughout their body. So we can imagine these things, but we don't really know the answers to those questions. No, we don't. And it's an interesting debate within biology at the moment. Stephen Jay Gould, a famous paleontologist, I know he's famous because he appeared on The Simpsons, uh, Gould said, if wherever you start evolution and wind the clock forward, you'll end up with something different at the end right. of it. Yeah. Simon Conway Morris, also distinguished paleontologist, said, no, just hold on a moment. What you have in evolution, Conway Morris argues, are certain convergences. So if you look at the evolutionary tree on Earth, you see the eye appearing over 40 times, mm-hmm. but in different yeah. lineages. Yeah. So Morris contends that the eye is one of those things where wherever you start evolution, you, you form certain structures. Yes. It's going to be helpful to differentiate colors and wavelengths of light. That's right. In a world where the sun shines on it. Exactly. Right. And if you use that type of argument, you get to a stage where Star Trek actually may be correct mm. in that most alien life, if it exists and intelligent, isn't too different from us in terms of its bipedal nature. Now, you've got to be careful with that, but there's something in that. And the emergence then of consciousness, language, observation of the world, these type of things, isn't too far off. If there is not intelligent life in the other billions of galaxies, is it pointless to ask the question, why would God create them? Or does God have some reason... Is that so anthrocentric that, you know, is that so self-important or is that a reasonable question? I think sometimes it has been. Uh, And I think uh, it's rather like saying to a couple of friends of mine who've just had their first child, why did you have a baby? Well, no longer do we live in a culture where the children will look after their parents when their parents Mm. are old and decrepit. Yeah. You have a child because you delight in the creativity. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the universe is rather like that for God. God delights in the creativity. I don't think he needs even human beings to love. This is where theologians do have different views. But my own view is that 
in terms of experiencing and giving love, the Trinity actually is sufficient. And therefore, the creation of the universe is fun, playfulness. Mm. It's extravagance. God doesn't need to create the universe. He delights in creating the universe. He wants to create the universe. And therefore, I think we've always got to be careful not to judge God purely from what would be the most useful thing for human beings. Is it incredibly dark to say the universe is play for God, tell that to a Holocaust victim? Yes, it is. That's the danger. (laughs) And that's where I think those questions of the problem of evil and the question of human responsibility within the universe become important. But it's also the, the issue that if God has put into the universe itself a degree of freedom, so not just human free will, which causes the Holocaust, right. but also a degree of freedom in the physical process, which may cause hurricane or earthquake. But which um, might also lead to various forms of intelligent life. Absolutely. Right. I've thought this before. Is it is it true that everything in the world is in some sense a result of the fact of finitude? That since it's not infinite, since everything has an end, then you have discrete items that are not all one big infinite thing and then you get pain and you get you get change and you all this stuff it it almost to me this is kind of a weird metaphysical claim but it seems to all come from just the finitude of stuff I've, i've not thought really about that before but it makes sense and it's worth thinking about further i wouldn't rule it out there is a real sense also in which the christian witness is that this creation has finitude. Mm, this right. creation is not the end of the story. Right, right. This creation is has to be seen from the perspective of new creation. And often within discussions of science and religion, it's new creation that's left out, as mm. if all God's purposes are into this creation for infinity. Uh, well, we now know that, in fact, the universe will not go on forever, its end is destined to futility, and uh, there's a finitude there. And I think within the biblical account, the sense of the groaning of this creation, the finitude absolutely of this creation, and yet that God has purposes that go beyond this creation are really important. So I think theologically there's much in what you say. Mm. Given that the Fermi paradox only counts for our galaxy and the billions of other galaxies, what do you think the chances are that there is intelligent life outside the Milky Way that can communicate with God much the way that we can? I think it's more than likely. I think the difficulty for us is actually ever finding evidence for that question. Right, right. So it's speculatively, one can argue from the evidence of science as we have it now, that, yeah, I would, I would guess that it's more than likely. But... Finding evidence for that is going to be the difficult thing. It's going to be a fluke, I think, if we ever find that. Theologically, though, probability seems like a big enough motivator to think through our our theological, our doctrines based on the probability or possibility that we're not the only beings that God loves and self-discloses to. Absolutely. I think for a number of reasons. First is that, uh, of course, I might be wrong about intelligent life in this galaxy there may be quite a lot of intelligent life 
and uh, we want to be ready, particularly when uh, Alien Life may say, take us to your president. We might need to be very careful <laughs> about that. Secondly, oh, I, he's, uh, yeah, he went out uh, for, that's right. he went out for that's dinner. Right. He's, he's right. not around right now. Um, secondly, um, you're absolutely right. There's enough science to say that this could be a reality and therefore let's take that seriously. But I think the third, the third reason for it is that actually right back within Christian tradition, there's been a freedom to speculate about other worlds. Mm. And this is in part a reflection of a fundamental theological truth that if God is God, then God is free to create as God wants to create. Mm. He's not going to be constrained by our logic or where we put human beings in the universe or anything of that sort. Yeah. For me, this is a fascinating, what I often call theological sandpit. It's a place where we can speculate about the nature of human beings, about revelation, about salvation, about the nature of the Jesus event, while staying clear from some really sensitive questions about how those doctrines relate to people of other faiths, mm. or indeed life and death issues of what it means to be human at the beginning of life and at the end of life. These are ethical areas which have had rich debate about them, but are all charged with a degree of sensitivity towards real situations and real people. Christians, I think, at times just need to step back into a way of discussing these things. And aliens, at the moment, are speculation. And yeah. therefore, we can talk about some of these things with a freedom that sometimes we don't have in the real situations that we encounter. So I think there's great value in all of these things. I feel like I should ask this. So you're not convinced by sort of UFO truth or evidence that's out there or Roswell or something like I, that? I don't want to dismiss it. I want to take it as seriously as I can, partly out of respect for those who hold this very dear. And I spend a little bit of time looking at it, and all I can conclude is that there are UFOs, but what, which I mean unidentified they flying are objects. unidentified, yes. We don't know what they are. Now, it's a, it's a logical misstep to go, because there is a UFO, that has to be an alien spacecraft, right. which has traveled 4.6 billion light years right. in order to be with us. So I want to keep an open mind on it. There's quite a few government programs, for instance, that are not disclosed to the public that involve right. propulsion, and, for instance. And yeah. conspiracy theories play both ways. Remember the Roswell incident was used both by the government to cover over its own technology, mm. but also by the other side of the argument uh, to say uh, exactly the opposite. Now, I think um, until we get really firm evidence mm -hmm. that we are a visited planet, then uh, that's where I want to leave it at the moment. I have two more questions for you. I'm also going to ask these to Keith. One of them goes very local and one of them goes very big. I want to start with an aquatic question. So we already know on our own planet that cephalopods, which include octopi and cuttlefish, are quite intelligent and they seemed to develop their intelligence on a totally different evolutionary time scale. Like the, the closest ancestor to them and us is like, you know, 500 million years ago, like worms, basically. 
and then went to Sibley and they have a different kind of nervous system and they can recognize human beings and they squirt water when people come into the lab. And, and so we don't even in some sense need to go into space to think about the problem of other intelligences. And you can certainly imagine if something had gone a little different evolutionarily, that the, the people with whom God communicates lived underwater, for instance. That's also, by the way, a way out of the Fermi paradox, is if there were intelligent life underwater, which is where most life has been developed on our planet, they would not even be looking at the stars, nor would they have a way to live on land. So what do you think about how do when you think about cephalopods and, and just sort of the you know the, the various possibilities there and, and what that tells us about humans and is there a theological implication open open prompt for you? It's a fascinating question and I'd be wrong in saying I've thought about it before. The, <laughs> I just read that book Other Minds by uh, Godfrey Smith, absolutely. the philosopher. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a fair point. I'm a Wesleyan and one of the things that what does that mean for uh, people who aren't oh, familiar? Yes, thank yeah. you. Uh, John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church, which was originally a movement, a renewal movement within Anglicanism. Wesley was a great theologian, but also widely read in the science of his day. Mm. In 1781, he preached an interesting sermon called The Great Deliverance. And in this sermon, he argued not about sea creatures, but he argued that there's a place in the new creation for cats and dogs. Hmm. My quite wife, revolutionary. I had to send this sermon to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> quite revolutionary for the time. Yeah. And what Wesley was partly saying was that God's purposes aren't confined hmm. to human beings and that God is the one who communicates in lots of different ways. So God communicates in the beauty of nature, in the structure of the universe in direct religious experiences, as well as for Christians, supremely in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. of becoming a human being. Now, at one level, I don't have any problem at all with a God who communicates to other intelligences in lots of different ways. Sure. I think the question that you'll move on to is, do octopi need an octopi Jesus? Actually, and, I wasn't going to ask that, but it's a great... Well, if... Yes, if octopi were, if, if instead cephalopods had not primates, right, had become the intelligent, the truly intelligent, self-conscious species, yeah, would, would Jesus be basically uh, an octopus? Well, I mean, at this point is where we get to a real diving down into the nature of the Jesus event. Yeah. So Christians say that the Jesus event is about God becoming a human being for two reasons, primarily. The first is to show us what God is like. The second is to save us, deliver us, liberate us from the power of sin, the power yeah. of rebellion against God. C.S. Lewis, in his science fiction trilogy, Out of a Silent Planet, many years ago pointed out uh, that in order to start talking about octopi Jesus or whatever it is, you've got to confront this question of whether other intelligences might have sinned in the same way that sure. human intelligence has. And if they haven't sinned, they haven't rebelled against God, then is incarnation needed or not? But given the mathematical 
orders that we've been talking about, I mean, it's unlikely that there are three forms of intelligent life. It's either one or there's like thousands or a million or something. And so you're going to certainly have some that sin. And then also depends on what you think about sin, which we're also going to get into with Keith later on. But if sin is just sort of people being selfish when they can forecast the future in a world of finite resources, for instance, well, then it's hard to imagine any self-conscious beings not being sinful. Like you really find cephalopod aliens who just die and don't take anything from their neighbor before they die. <laughs> they just sacrifice themselves. How, how would they reproduce? I mean, if, if their evolution is anything like ours, they would die off. So it's, it's almost impossible to imagine Darwinian evolution producing non-sinful sentient beings. I don't know if I'm moving No, I think you're right. Here. There is a degree in which Darwinian evolution has to have uh, selfishness, uh, but not always, of course, because, mm-hmm. because you see the emergence of of kin altruism. Well, not pure selfishness, species. but it, it doesn't. It does that's not right. allow for pure selflessness. That's basically. right. Yeah. That's right. Which is what would be required to not right. need atonement of sin. So, my own yeah. view, for what it's worth, is that any other intelligences would have that inner contradiction mm. of both beauty and goodness and selfishness mm. and sinfulness. Just like us. Yep. Just like us. Yep. And in that way would need the saving work of Jesus Christ. However, theologians then disagree about whether that saving work of Jesus Christ needs to be located in just one particular event in space and time or in a number of yeah. particular events in space and time. The one being, if it's just one, it means that Jesus of Nazareth, that applies to all created beings in the universe, yeah. That's right, that's well, right. we're going to get into that with Keith later. My last question for you, which I will also ask him, is multiverse string theory, which can either be universes existing somehow side by side or expanding and contracting infinitely over and over again. This is a related question and seems to have some interplay with what we've been talking about. If some version of multiverse is true, does that change any of the stuff we've been talking about in your mind? How does it impact it? Yeah, thank you. Multiverse is very sexy at the moment. In that it is. Yeah. It comes Got into to just about it. every <laughs> question. I don't yeah. think it makes a great deal of difference. I think just to qualify something a little bit, we now know since 1999 in the accelerating universe, it's very unlikely that the universe is part of a chain of expanding and contracting universes. Mm, okay. However, having said that, the point of your question is entirely valid. And that is, if there are many universes which have emerged from bubbles a bit like ours, right? and they all have different laws of physics, and we only know this universe because we've developed in this universe, then the possibilities for different forms of life become even larger. However, there is a problem with multiverse theory. It's a fundamental problem. A, you can't ever prove it. Right. Um, it's impossible to have empirical evidence that's right. from, from a universe not your own. That's right, exactly. And B, allied to that for exactly the same reason, you can't communicate with other universes. Mm. Yeah. Now that means for me that at the moment, multiverse theory is philosophical speculation. Mm-hmm. It's metaphysics. Now, it's not to be dismissed as useless because of that, but it has a limit to it. So I think it has an application 
to people who claim that the universe is fine-tuned. And it's a reminder that there are more explanations to the fine-tuning than just God did it. Sure. So multiple Unless you just say God did it by having multiple, multiple universes. universes. <laughs> and Don Page, who worked with Stephen Hawking over a number of years, Canadian physicist, actually has no problem at all with multiverse yeah, for yeah. exactly that reason. Yeah. I don't have a problem with multiverse. I, I think, you know, I'm an astrophysicist who believes that there are 100 billion stars in 100 billion galaxies. To add a few more zeros onto the end of yeah. how many stars might there right. be is not a big theological problem. And maybe to, yeah, and to answer my question theologically then, like we said, it's it's unlikely there are four or five intelligent. It's either us or thousands or millions and throw on some more universes and the, the problem is going to be the same. So it doesn't seem to really affect this question of... Um, I, th- I think yeah. that's right. And I think it's a really important point that you've made then about, you know, that we could have lots and lots of different intelligences with continuity and discontinuity between them. Now, the question then is, I don't think, is just an option where you say one incarnation or an incarnation for every particular species. Mm. I think there might be a sense in which we get God communicating in ways that point towards a particular incarnation, just in the same way that we might say on the earth. I don't believe that there have been lots of incarnations in lots of different cultures. But I think there are certain things which I find as I talk with my Muslim and Jewish and other faith friends, which may point towards some kind of incarnation. And at least they point towards a God who communicates, not just through incarnation. Yeah. David, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast or enjoy other podcasting work that I've done in the past, if you think that it is a valuable addition to your life and the lives of your community, would you consider becoming a patron? It starts at only $5 a month, and it includes two bonus episodes for patrons only every single month. Those are episodes that do not play anywhere else, and they're really fun. It's quite a variety of topics. I really free myself up to talk with anybody interesting about any interesting question. Patrons also will be able to submit questions and topics for future episodes like that and future Q&A episodes. And of course, you get access to all the previous patron conversations that I've already had and posted on that platform. Here are a couple clips in kind of no particular order of little bits of those conversations. So the hiddenness of God is an assertion of God's otherness, that God is this fundamentally, there's something about God that is other to us that like we can't just figure out by using our natural reasoning or our natural observations or our, it's it's not something that we can intuit from our experience. He values loyalty more than anything. And loyalty is pretty amoral. The guy has no moral fiber to speak of as as far as looking at his life's record. I mean, this goes back decades. Partly as a result of having had, having had such like a tortured, that's way too strong a word, but sort of a, a humorously 
classical version of the evangelical experience of like accepting Christ 20 times as a child. And, and, and just finally, like in college, getting to the point where I'm like, man, if it's about like saying a prayer a certain way, like I've, I've said the prayer. I'm in. If at that's this what point, it is, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty in. Um, My passport has been stamped, stamped many times. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a 16 year old fan really does want to sleep with a front man and they lie about their age. Those things happen. Those happen in the music industry. I've seen it happen. And I'm not making an attempt to victim blame or anything. It's a part of this weird part of music culture that unlike TV, I can watch Brad Pitt on a movie, but I'm not in a situation where Brad Pitt could ever like call me out of a crowd backstage. To sign up for the Patreon, go to youhavepermissionpod.com. Thanks so much. And now we're going to get another angle on this question from philosopher and theologian Keith Ward. The reason that I wanted to talk with you today is because all this fantastically interesting stuff is still fresh in our minds. We are at the American Academy of Religion Conference in Denver, and we, I just heard you and others do this fantastic panel. One thing that came up in the session, and also in my conversation with David, is sort of this vast number, thousands of exoplanets that we have discovered in our own galaxy. But for you, do exoplanets actually matter? Or theologically, are they just sort of a nice way to get into talking about something that doesn't even need them? Well, I don't think we need them for theology. I think uh, medieval theologians and early Christians too talked about the implications of Christ for the whole universe as known to them. And they had a very clear doctrine that uh, Christ was really the saviour of the world, by which they meant everything in heaven and on earth. That includes angels, extraterrestrials, if ever there were, and other worlds. So the, the problem has always been there, but what happens with exoplanets is we now have uh, evidence that there really could be alien forms of life. So it's uh, this discovery is not new theologically, but it's um, a great help to imagination to force you to think, well, what is the significance of Jesus on this small planet, on this small solar system, in this small galaxy for the whole of the universe? Yeah, the, the vast universe that we now know we live in that earlier Christian thinkers didn't know that we lived in. And for you, the rubber hits the road when you think about the Trinity. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think an ongoing debate at the moment among Christians is whether when you call God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's the definitive, accurate, final, total description of God. It's absolutely correct for everybody, everywhere. Well, then if you think about alien beings in some other galaxy where they wouldn't have fathers and sons. They might not have air-breathing animals. They, they might live in water or anything like that. And spirit is air, of course. The Holy Spirit is derived from the word for air. Yeah, or wind, right? Yeah. Or wind. So They might not have wind. Yeah, they right. might not have wind. So it looks as though there would be beings, possibly intelligent, rational beings, spiritual beings perhaps, who wouldn't be able to make sense of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It mm. wouldn't make sense to them. And, and that just brings it home that maybe that's not the final, correct, total description of God at all. It's the description for us on our planet and how God is related to us human beings. But it's, So you can have a trinity, 
a threefoldness in the divine being without it being finally described as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You talked about in, in your presentation one view of the Trinity that you called naive realism. Uh, what, what does that mean and, and what is that view? Uh, naive realism, it's a view in philosophy for what you see is what there is. So if you look at the moon uh, in the sky and it looks like a small yellow disc, that's what it is. <laughs> it's a small yellow the disc. The moon is literally a small yellow disc yeah. on naive realism. That's, yeah. that's naive yeah. realism. It's what it really is in relation to you. Yeah, it, it really is a small del- yellow disc to you looking from Earth in the evening. That's right, where right. you are in your perspective. But you yes. have to build that in. So I think when you think about God, this is what God looks like to you from your perspective. You're a human And it could be Earth. correct, you yeah. know, from your perspective. Right. But it's not necessarily what God is like in God's own self. Hmm. And that's a useful point. I mean, it's been made by theologians before in the past, but it brings it home a bit when you look at planets and the moon and the thought of other lives. It just uh, bring, it's more vivid for the imagination. So then in that sense, how God appears to us as human beings on Earth needn't be how God truly is and therefore needn't be how God necessarily would appear to people who are not human beings on planet Earth. Yeah, I I think that's correct. In fact, uh, I think it would seem to me that if we don't know if there are other beings in other galaxies, but if there are, it's most unlikely that their view of God would be the same as ours. But I think we'd want to say their view could be correct for them as our view is correct for us. So that the reality of God is perhaps beyond all of our finite perceptions. And again, that's fairly traditional theology. You mentioned too in your talk that there is a way that people talk about God in Sanskrit. So I'm assuming this is in Hindu tradition. Yeah. As threefold, is that being consciousness and bliss? Is that the the threefold that I'm thinking? Yeah, that's it. You've got to be very careful about this because some people say there's a Hindu trinity, which is Brahma, Vishnu, and Kali, mm. but that's misleading. It, it, it's yeah. quite misleading. They don't think of that as a trinity at all. So, so not that one. I'm thinking of Brahman, which is B-R-A-H-M-A-N. And, yeah, and uh, the Sanskrit term for that that's often used is Sat, Chit, Ananda, which is being, consciousness, and bliss. So if that's the word for ultimate reality... Uh, then it's not gendered and uh, Mm. it's not anthropomorphic either. So that's kind of a way, it's not that we necessarily need to say that Hindus are more right than Christians are about the Trinity, but it's a way of saying, look, here is another population of sentient beings who have an idea of a threefold God. They don't think in terms of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but look, they've, they've kind of hit on some of the same things. It, it's it's kind of a way into this conversation about other forms of life. Is that? Yeah, I think right? that's true. Um, people from Western Europe and the states, the Western world in general, have misunderstood uh, Eastern philosophy, Chinese and Indian, quite mm-hmm. radically in the past, and they've been very superior about it. All these primitive ideas, mm-hmm. but actually, when you look at it more closely, and we can now, we've got the you can even get it on the computer. You can get the ancient texts of great philosophers like Shankara and Ramanuja, and uh, they were really good theologians and philosophers. And yeah, they very much 
got a similar idea of ultimate reality to Christians, but they wouldn't talk about a trinity. That's not in not in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit trinity anyway. Yeah. But there might be a sort of threefoldness in God. Yeah. I'm going to come back to a question about other religions, but sticking for the time with extraterrestrial intelligence. In your mind, could the second person of the Trinity, the Word, become incarnate more than one time? Uh, yes. Uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century asked that question, and he said yes. I mean, God can become incarnate in any way that God wants, presumably. I mean, there's no limitations on, on God's ability there. Right. So what Thomas Aquinas said was, well, there could be more than one, but there's no need, you know, because uh, you only need the one on the earth. But of well, course, of course, Thomas Aquinas didn't know about the size of the universe. He didn't know about uh, all the other planets right. they might be. Yeah. So that's an interesting <clears throat> way of taking kind of a classic insight from him and, and applying it in a context with modern science. I think it is, yeah. And, and I think Aquinas's reply, well, I'm making it up for him, but if he had thought they were completely alien beings on completely alien worlds, he'd have surely said, well, there'd be an appropriate way for God uh, to express uh, the important things that God is love and God is reconciling, and, and that could be expressed in a different form. So one way we might imagine this is equally valid or, or equally complete incarnations for other beings on in other solar systems, but might we also think of this in a kind of a Christian inclusivist way as, well, maybe Hindus or Muslims are getting these kind of Maybe it's not the full picture that we get in Jesus, but they are getting a, quite a bit of God, or maybe even in the lamas in Tibet or something like that. Are you open to a kind of a, you know, it's, I don't want to call it like a B minus version, but there's something of God in it. It's not the full revelation of Christ. How do you think through that? Yeah, I don't think other religions have precisely the doctrine of incarnation that Christians do, because they have a very different view of world history and how God relates to people who haven't got the the Jewish Abrahamic uh, tradition. But I'm sure that a Christian ought to think that since God in Christ came to reconcile the whole world to God, mm. Christians are really bound to believe that God is revealing something true and important about God in other sincere religions and uh, and you'd expect to find, yes, there are different ways in which God reveals the divine being. Now, would you consider that to be a partial revelation of the second person of the Trinity, or do you think of it differently? Each person has to start from the society they live in and the, the tradition they've inherited and the language they've learned from their parents and start from there and say, how can this be made adequate to my mm. experience and to our scientific knowledge? So given that, I don't want to rank religions as better or worse. I just want to say there are different traditions which relate human beings to a higher spiritual reality. In my tradition, the Christian one, I obviously think my way is the most adequate way I know. I expect people in other traditions to say the same thing about their tradition. Right. I mean, the Dalai Lama is famous for saying Christians shouldn't become Buddhists, their way is right but underneath it all, he thinks, but of course, uh, they've got yeah, but of course, wrong. Not yes. as right as... <laughs> not as right as we are. So you're bound yeah. to think your own tradition is more adequate. You're just bound to. You know, if right. you're an atheist, you're bound to think you're more right than Christians, for example. Mm -hmm. So you can't help that. Yeah. But you still don't rank them. 
And you don't say Christianity has a, is superior to atheism. You just say, if you're a Christian, atheism is wrong. Mm. So you've got to make those sort of distinctions. But you've got to follow that up by saying, well, from my point of view, that's how I see it. I think it's as best that I can do. So I'm going to stick with this. So what is the difference there, though? I mean, in some sense, it sounds like semantics. To say that I believe Christianity is true in a way that other things are not, how is that not superior? I mean, is there a meaningful difference between those two things? Um, I think there is. Uh, take example, this might turn out to be very misleading, but I'll try it, of music. And you say some people find Bach to be a terrific composer. Mm. Uh, other people might say, no, Wagner's a fantastic composer. Well, you don't have to rank them. You don't have to say who's the best composer. You say there are different types of composition, different types of music, and different temperaments, or perhaps mm. people from different cultures uh, prefer the thing that uh, they've been brought up with and learned. So I'd say with religions, you know, you can't put them in rank order. Well, you've just got to say these are different paths, and if if you then try to describe to what are they paths, you'll do it in terms of your own tradition. Mm. But if you're wise, you'd also add, but I don't expect I've got the whole truth, really. Right. right. I think seems- we're learning that in our culture to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be some politeness that we're learning about this stuff. About some respect. Yeah, some respect, uh, yeah. yeah. And maybe that comes with being more connected through the internet or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and and it comes of meeting people and living next to people who have a different faith, but you respect. Right. And it's a spiritual faith, uh, but it's put in a very different way. And that meeting can actually change the way you... Each person interprets their own right. tradition, but you don't give it up. It's like saying, um, you know, this is, this is my tradition and I find it of value and I, I expect it will be fulfilled if anybody ever comes to know the full truth. Hmm. And I think people in other traditions can say the same thing. And I think that's helpful. You say nobody has the full truth. So I'm not saying I'm A, you're B and C. I'm saying we're all B, perhaps. Hmm but different ways of approaching. We can't all be right all of the time. Of course not, yeah. Now, if I understand correctly, you affirm uh, universal salvation? Yeah, I reckon if God really is a God of unlimited love, God will offer and make possible universal yeah. salvation. It doesn't really mean that everybody's going to be saved, even if they don't take the steps right. to get saved. But so does that sort of take the weight off, so to speak, in this other conversation about people of other faiths, if you're not worried about them going to hell because they're a Hindu, then you're a lot less anxious about figuring out exactly how Christianity is more true and making sure you've explained that to them because it's your job to get them on Team Jesus lest something happen to them. Is that is there a connection there? There is, yeah. I think there's a very strong connection. I think... If I lived in Saudi Arabia, which of course I don't, well, I wouldn't be allowed to try and convert Muslims because it's illegal and they get stoned to death if they're converted. So that's a pretty serious thing. And what I want to say to a Muslim is be a good Muslim. Look for the best in Islam. And of course, to myself, I'd be saying the best in Islam is remarkably like the best in Christianity. Mm. But still, I want to say no missionary work these days can't be just trying to tell people something truer than what they know. It can be trying to help people to grow in their own appreciation because in the end, being converted, being saved is up to God. It's not up to what we do. Mm. 
let's let's get back to incarnation here. We think of the incarnation, of course, as God becoming human, God taking on flesh. But is humanity, strictly speaking, uh, as opposed to other forms of biological life, is humanity necessary for incarnation? Well, if the incarnation is a union of the divine nature with a, a finite nature, you've got to say, well, what sort of finite nature would be appropriate for incarnation. So I do think it would have to be something which, which was conscious that there was such a unity. Which because is, God's conscious, first yeah, of all. Yeah, yeah it has to be God conscious. And it, we have to have a certain responsibility, the ability to respond or to refuse. So there'd be certain things about personal life which would have to exist. So it's got to be some pretty high order form of um, animal life, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, I don't see why God could not, if there were a reason in God's mind, become incarnate in uh, a dolphin. Hmm. Or certainly if they're, you know, in the billions of galaxies in the observable universe, plus however many there may be beyond that are moving too fast for us to see them, if there is any sentient life there that can know God, then that's sufficient for incarnation. Yeah, your mind. I think so. And this is, if you mean by incarnation, the uniting of a finite being with a, with the divine being. I mean, we hope that some of us are partly united with the divine, we say, in Christ, in the Christian tradition. But and we think, in our tradition, that Jesus is the only being human known to us who is fully united to God. So that's the incarnation. But clearly there could be other species not human, which would be able to say the same sort of thing. So I expect when we get to heaven, to put it in picture terms, there won't be a human being sitting on the throne next to God. There'll be millions of finite beings who have, in their own context, been united to God, and they will all be finite expressions of the one word of God, the wisdom of God, which is, of course, beyond any finite form. Now, you're saying that with or without intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Or are you saying from species on the earth there will be more than just human representations? I don't know. I rather doubt that on the earth there are other animal species which uh, are God-conscious in that way. Yeah. And, and so you're assuming of others in the universe then for that yes, for that, that there could well be. I mean, I think, as Thomas Aquinas did say, there could be animals which are totally God-conscious. I don't know, but... Mm. On the evidence at the present, I rather doubt it. But it's not a logical question, it's, it's an empirical question. Are there any beings which would have the capacity for achieving and expressing the divine nature in their own context and knowing that that's what was going on? Mm. Now, there's a sense in which we don't even need to go to other planets. We could look at cephalopods, octopus and uh, cuttlefish, and they are not as intelligent as we are. But they are quite intelligent in a completely different context. They live underwater. They may never, of course, and even if they were going to, will probably destroy the oceans. Such that they can't evolve that kind of intelligence given enough time. But you could imagine things having gone differently in the course of evolution. Or you could imagine this on some other planet where the sentient life forms live underwater. What do you think about when you consider either cephalopods, if they were given more time, or some sort of aquatic intelligent being on another planet? What is, how does that 
get into okay, the conversation. If, if, you, uh, if you think of Jesus as showing and enacting what God is like in relation to the universe, what you're saying is Jesus is not the only place where God unites to a finite being and suffers. Mm. Um, that is the nature of God throughout the whole universe. So what the incarnation does is show what God is like everywhere. Mm. But this is a clear instance of what God is like everywhere. It's not the only place where God is like that. So I actually want to say, yeah, there could be um, many forms of uniting to the divine. And you'd still have a God who creates, who reconciles the universe to the divine being in whatever way is necessary in its context. And I think that's the main message of Christianity. So while death or resurrection is appropriate for human beings because greed and violence makes a death necessary in this of any just person necessary and a resurrection is what is the hope for all beings um, any beings that that know that they die that's right any right. being which which is capable of knowing that it's the same being who once existed is right. now there i think yeah the, all uh, it's appropriate for us for for god to be expressed in a human life but it, i it's a terrible limit on the possibilities that God has to say God couldn't be expressed perfectly anywhere else at all. I, I don't think you have the right to say that. Well, so this leads into questions about original sin then, right? So if someone holds the Augustinian understanding of original sin as being passed down, you know, sort of reproductively, sexually, from Adam and Eve to all the rest of humanity... Well, then your description of the crucifixion and resurrection as revealing what God is like is not going to cut the mustard. They're going to say, no, there's an actual curse that had to be lifted, and it was it was actually lifted in that moment by Christ. But that's not your view on original sin, right? Not at all, no. And it's not the view of uh, huge numbers of Christians. I mean, the Russian and Greek Orthodox churches and all the Orthodox churches do not have that doctrine. Okay. The Jews don't have that doctrine. It, it, they have Genesis. <laughs> it's not, right. So it's, it's <laughs> an invention uh, from one sentence of Paul, of St. Augustine, who was a pretty perverted uh, sexual person, as he himself admitted. Yes. Uh, so um, I wouldn't take that seriously. I, but, I, but what I would take seriously is we are estranged from God. We don't yeah. know God. We don't obey God. So, how, so I don't take the story of the fall literally. I take it as a picture of what we humans are like now. Yeah. Really. So redemption is really just uh, removing what keeps us apart from God and uniting us to God. So it's a present process. So even the crucifixion and the resurrection, their past events as such, as such, I've got to be very careful about this, they don't save us. Mm. It's because we can appropriate them in our own lives that they save. So salvation is really by the Spirit. But the Spirit is doing, we, some of us believe, uh, in us what was shown in a clear way in the person of Jesus. So we say, well, that's the pattern of life, crucifixion and resurrection, dying to self, rising to new life through the Spirit. So the original sin picture is very misleading, really. Um, Seems on one end you've got a kind of a, a fundamentalist reading of original sin, if we might call it that, which is like, 
No, it's sort of in your biology, and it has to be paid for. Blood, blood requires blood. No, I don't think that. And don't think that. No, but at then all. you could go yeah. all the way over to like a Joseph Campbell. It's all about the archetype. It's just a myth. It's an example of the kind of self-giving thing that we are invited to do. And Jesus is just a a, a big story of that. You're you're yeah. not saying either of those things. I'm not saying either of those things. No, no. I would never say just a myth for a start. The word myth ought to be abolished now because it's so misleading. And and you get books about myth which say it's just a legend. It didn't really happen. You need a different word. I don't know what it would be, but for a historical event which accomplished something real and changed things in a real way, but it wasn't literally the way it's described. It's not quite a myth, uh, but it's a a sort of dramatised history if you like, to yeah. bring out the spiritual meaning of it. And I think that's what Jesus is. He's a real historical person. He really died, and I believe he really appeared after his death to the apostles. So these are real yeah. historical events. But, of course, they're described, especially in John's Gospel, in a very cosmic way. Mm-hmm. That these are cosmic events. So that's making the history into something of present spiritual significance for people. It's that link you need. It's it's not just a myth. It's history, but it's history with a spiritual significance that continues into the present, right? I don't think the word myth is good for that, and I don't know any other word. Yeah, we need a new word. There, there are two ways that some people think about various understandings of Christ's atonement for sin, and they, they put them into two categories. One of them is that it it did work, it accomplished something. And then the other is that it is revelatory, meaning it reveals something about God. So an example of accomplishment would be penal substitutionary atonement. There's a penalty of death on me. Christ's resurrection literally takes that from me and put, he goes in my place. Okay. You could have the uh, Abelardian theory, which, which is that Jesus shows the love of God and he moves us with pity and terror to to love him. So it's not that he did something like pay the price that God required, but his love was such that it changes our lives if we respond to it. That's our right. Yeah. yeah, so that's more of a revelatory version. Yeah. It sounds like you're yeah. more, atonement is more the revelatory camp yeah. than the accomplished uh, an act Sure it camp. is, yes. Uh, it's because I think that the actual dying of Jesus didn't accomplish anything for God. Hmm. Nothing changed, right? When it's Jesus that, of Nazareth dies, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything for God. It doesn't change anything for God, no. And that's perfectly orthodox Christianity. God is changeless. Hmm. You know. That's the classic theism. That's yeah. the classic theory. So, yeah. so the death of Jesus on the cross didn't change anything for God. Its significance is for us, not for God. So it's not that we owe God a price and God required us to pay the price. That would be some change going on, a transaction with God. It's not that sort of thing at all. It's that Jesus' death shows us what sin does to us and what it means for our relationship to God. It means we kill God in our hearts, Mm. really. And so it reveals what God is, it reveals what we are, it reveals what happens if someone totally obedient to God puts themselves against the way of the world, really. So it reveals lots of things. Now, that might change us if we respond to it. If you say God suffers because of human sin, but it's not overcome by evil, that's a different story. It's the same event, Jesus dying on the cross. It's a question of what it's showing, 
And what it's doing, what it's showing is that God is suffering redemptive love. What it's doing is it's making that pattern of life available to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So there is a doing. But In a sense, there's not a strict delineation between an atonement that accomplishes something and an atonement that reveals something. Because by revealing what God is like, it's, it's simultaneously an invitation yeah. to live like God. Exactly. You know, that, that's what God is doing, if you like, is, is presenting the invitation in a new Inviting us. Uh, way. And, yeah. and, of course, creating the Christian churches which make that possibility real in us. So mm. that is a doing, but, but it's not doing. limited to that one event on the cross. Right. It starts there, but it's not limited to that. Or, for instance, you might think of the scapegoat theory with René Girard, the idea that human beings need a scapegoat to kill and blame, and then Jesus shows us that there is no need for a scapegoat by becoming the ultimate scapegoat. Or I think there's another one that you might have mentioned. Jesus would not necessarily need to be crucified. Like, that wouldn't necessarily need to be the means by which, if there is other forms of life, that they would understand what God is like, they would just need something that had a similar meaning given their cultural, linguistic, biological circumstances that would show, oh, self-giving love, self-sacrifice, something like that. Yep. Crucifixion is important in its context because you have the whole Jewish tradition of a a high priest going with a sacrifice into the Holy Mm -hmm. of Holies. And right. that's presenting the life of an animal as a right. gift to God. Yeah. Of course, as Hebrews puts it, Jesus presents himself as a gift. But if it wasn't for that Jewish tradition of ritual sacrifice, the crucifixion wouldn't have that meaning at all. You'd need some other symbol of total self-giving love. It certainly wouldn't, in general, need to be crucifixion. It would be, you know, if you imagine an alien world that hadn't, wasn't estranged from God, for example then mm. self-giving love wouldn't be such a big deal. Everybody would be doing it, right? If you can mm. imagine that. Then it, still, the word of God might uh, reveal itself uh, as a confirmation that that's what God was like and what God required right. and, and a way of uniting the natures of those beings to the divine nature. So the whole thing might play out without a, without a death at all. It seems derelict to talk about this without talking about the multiverse or the possibility of more than one cosmos. I don't see why there shouldn't be a beginningless and endless series of universes. Mm. Because if God is infinitely powerful, infinitely great, infinitely creative, infinitely creative, then God creates any number of universes. And uh, again, just to quote a great medieval theologian, Aquinas, he said, creation is not the beginning of the universe. Creation is the dependence of any universe upon the eternal being of God. Right. So it doesn't matter how many universes there are, but if God is love, then that will appear in some appropriate way in all of those universes. And I think as a Christian, you can say, I'm perfectly happy with that. And I can say, well, the way that Jesus appeared is suitable for us as human beings. And and God is really like that, but only when God is acting in relation to us. We're back to your point about the moon. The moon is not a, a pale yellow disc, but the moon does actually empirically appear to us as a pale yellow disc because of what it actually is, which is 
a moon. And so it should. Spherical body, right? And so God is actually such and such a way. And when God interacts with human beings, that is the Trinity. That's Jesus of Nazareth as the Word. That's death and resurrection. That is what how God appears to us. But that 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 needn't be what God actually is. And so we can be much more open to other ways that a loving and creative God might manifest to other of God's creatures that are wholly unlike us. Yeah. Is that right? I'd really like to see a Christian belief that was as open and as committed as that one. Well, I'll keep trying. Thank you so much, (laughs) Dr. Ward. Thank you. These episodes are intended to be resources, so please share them, even with people who might disagree. Parents, friends, pastors, whomever. Uh, There are links in the show notes to David and Keith's websites. For The Theology Nerds, Keith's book on the Trinity, in which he makes his full case, is called Christ and the Cosmos. Um, Remember, you can join the Patreon for five bucks a month, and you get two bonus episodes every month that are not released to anybody else, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com, click become a patron. I really want to hear from you guys. Who should I interview? What topics should I cover? What questions are keeping you up at night or distracting you at work? Youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you dug what Keith had to say, I would recommend the multiple episodes of homebrewed Christianity, where he has been the primary guest. Just search for those. That's where I discovered him, and I kind of thought, where has this guy been all my life? Anyway, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for indulging one of the nerdier topics uh, that I happen to be interested in, and we'll see you next episode.